You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while you're hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. We've got a great episode for you. I had Mr. Troy Pottinger on the show. Now, this is the first time that Troy has been on, but I am no stranger to Troy. And if you like listening to hunting podcasts, you're probably no stranger to Troy either. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked a lot about on uh, for the How to Hunt Deer podcast specifically is how to set up mock scrapes. And I think Troy does that better than anyone else. We're getting into that you know, April timeframe, April, May, June, which is when I really like to get my mock scrapes set up. It seems like the earlier I can get them out, the better results that I have. If I wait until later in July, maybe even into August, I have less success than if I get those mock scrapes up and out right now. Now, Troy is famous for his buck traps. What Troy does is he sets up ultra realistic mock scrapes to not only keep tabs on the bucks in his area, but also hunt them to get the bucks hunting him, as he says. So great episode. You're going to want to stick around for that. A couple things before we jump in. I do want to say a big thanks to our partners. First of all, Tacticam. They're the title sponsor of the show. They're the makers of the best point of view cameras for outdoorsmen, whether you like to hunt, whether you like to fish, whatever it is you like to do, Tacticam has got a camera for you. Their 6.0 camera has 4K, 60 frame per second footage, up to 8X zoom, touchscreen display, one-touch operation, all of that in a waterproof package. It's a fantastic camera. If you're looking for something a little more budget-friendly, you can go check out their Solo Extreme camera that gives you HD footage. It's got the waterproof housing, one-touch operation, everything that you want from your Tacticam camera, just in a little bit more of a budget-friendly option. To check out their full line of cameras and also their mounts and adapters, you need to head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Next up, Huntworth. They are making comfortable, durable camo without the sticker shock. I've been wearing their tarnin pattern all year long. I've had the chance to have it out now, turkey hunting. And, uh, man, I got to say, I'm very, very impressed with it. I am not in the slightest bit disappointed. 
Uh, as things begin to warm up, I'm back in what I would consider my early season whitetail kit. That means I'm back in one of my favorite pieces, the Durham lightweight pants. I've got them in the camo. I've also got them in the gray for when I'm just doing habitat work around the property. And uh, man, I love those things. They're durable. They keep you cool. They've got a nice reinforced seat, reinforced knees, so they're not going to get torn up. Go check them out at huntworthgear.com. Finally, if there's one piece of equipment that I use more than any other, that is my Onyx Hunt app. As I'm preparing to head out to Iowa, then Wisconsin, then potentially Ohio for turkey hunting, I am on the Onyx Hunt app daily. They've got top-notch aerial imagery, private and public land boundaries. You've got the ability to fully customize your waypoints. Uh, It helps you scout and hunt more efficiently. And another thing I love about Onyx Hunt, even if I'm not out hunting or scouting, or if I'm just out, you know, hiking with the family, camping with the family, I've got my Onyx pulled up because you never know when you want to mark your waypoint, try to figure out your way back to wherever it was that you are. So Onyx goes with me everywhere I go. If you're not already using Onyx, now's a great time to give them a try. Head over to the app store of your choice and you can get a seven day free trial. Now let's jump into this week's show talking about setting buck traps with Troy Pottinger. All right, joining me for this week's episode of How to Hunt Deer is Mr. Troy Pottinger. Troy, how's it going tonight? Good, Josh. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, man. Thank you for coming on. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, man, you're up to uh, up to no good this week, it sounds like. It seems like I caught you at just the right time. Yeah, you caught me coming out of the woods from scouting. I'm actually still about three hours from home. Now, now I need to hear this. Did you, did you take time off this week just for scouting? I, well, I, the time that I had allotted off, yes, I, I have a, I'm a, I'm a teacher by trade and I'm on my spring break. Um, but I took pretty much every day of the week off to go scouting every day. And, you know, we've got 15 hour days now with the sunlight out. So I've really been trying hard to get out in the woods and get a ton of Intel and scouting in where I can. I'm still limited to a lot of snow, but yeah, I've been doing everything I can this week. I think I've got, I think I'm at about 60 hours right now. Wow. Wow. I was going to ask how, how productive can you be this time of year? I mean, like you said, you guys are still dealing with a lot of snow in some places. So like how, how productive can you be? How quickly can you cover ground? Um, at lower elevations where there's some good deer hunting, you know, lower, good quality deer hunting elevations of mine, I can get a ton done where, where I'm really limited is any place that I have to travel through mountain passes or get up into the higher elevations to get to maybe where I have a buck. I want to go pull a camera that's been sitting all winter. I can't get to any of that unless I take my snowmobiles. Wow. Okay. I was just about to ask how you're getting around. Like, are you using a quad snowmobile? Like how, how's that working? Cause I'm sure the rugged terrain and some of these roads are not, are not uh, well kept right now. Yeah, they're, they're, most of them are impassable unless you have a track machine or, or a snowmobile. Okay. Okay. Yep. Man. Well, Troy, I'm sure if people are listening to this podcast, they have probably heard, uh, heard of you before. If not, uh, if they're, if they don't recognize your name, they're probably going to start to recognize some of the stuff that we talk about because, um, you know, I, I definitely want to get to talking about scrapes, specifically mock scrapes. Cause I think it's probably a great time of year to, uh, start putting some of those bad boys in if people haven't already, but why don't you just kind of back up just a little bit, tell people who you are, what you do, and kind of, um, you know, how did you get into this whole whitetail 
uh, crazy world that you're in right now because you you hunt whitetails in terrain that is very different than most people. Yeah, uh, dates way back, Josh. Um, I am a native Idahoan, uh, North Idahoan, which Idaho is a really big, long state, and I live more in the northern part of the state where I guess the terrain would probably look a lot different to you than what you might think of when you see videos of Idaho. Uh, I think think most people, when they hear the word Idaho with related to hunting, they're thinking of bull elk, you know, mountain lions, uh, bear, moose, all of that. But I live in a part of North, I live in a part of Idaho, up North Idaho that I grew up in that's heavy logging timber country. We probably grow some of the best timber in the United States and Eastern Washington is, is the same. And so is Western Montana. So if you picture Western Montana, Northern Idaho, Eastern Washington, it's basically all kind of the same type of habitat, which is a sea hundreds and hundreds of miles of timbered mountains, um, beautiful lakes, rivers, big drainages, uh, watersheds, incredible high peaks, you know, up to 10, 12,000 feet. Uh, yeah. And then white tails live in it and they, they do thrive in it. Uh, this is mostly a, a gun hunting, uh, conventional gun hunting country. I'd say all three States that I hunt, but I dove into white tails and bow hunting way back when nobody else was doing it at all. Other than a few guys. I mean, they're, People that listen to this, if there's some older guys at my age, there's a couple guys out there that have been doing it too, but very, very few in the state of Idaho because Idaho never has allowed any type of baiting or anything. Um, so I grew up learning how to bow hunt whitetails in this vast, heavily predated, uh, huge, unforgiving country, no bait, no type of feeding or anything like that. So I really had to learn how to hunt these deer on a biological basis, um, which turned into, a, you know, my scrape hunting uh, that, that really drove me in that direction when I was younger. And I just, man, I fell in love with it when I was young. I, I decided I was just going to do it on my own. I really never had anybody, like, prompted me to do it. I just had whitetails growing up on my ranch when I was young. And I thought, man, if I could learn how to kill these here with a bow, I'm really going to learn how to hunt them and not just shoot them. So I dove into it young and I was a freak about whitetail biology when I was in my middle school and high school years and all through college and just put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days in the mountains uh, scouting versus goofing off in the summers and whatnot. And I just let the deer teach me how to hunt them. Basically, as I was growing up, I lost my dad at a really young age, who was a really good elk and mule deer hunter. And I lost him when I was 17. And, but one thing he had told me when I was younger and fall in love with the whitetails, he said, son, if you can learn how to kill these whitetails with a bow and arrow, you'll be doing something in this country. So that always stuck with me. Yeah. That always stuck with me and it always meant a lot to me. And then I lost my dad tragically in a logging accident, uh, when I was 17 so it was just something that meant a ton to me. And I got really focused at a young age when my dad got killed. I had to grow up fast. Um, 
my mother got cancer really bad after my dad died. So I just got really focused. I feel like as a young man and got my shit together, knew I had to take care of my mom and my, I had my brother. So I, I feel like I grew up fast. Like, I think I was thinking more like an adult when I was in my late teens and early twenties than a lot of people had to. Yeah. I was kind of forced. I was kind of forced to, um, I got fortunate that football paid my way through college. Um, or I probably wouldn't have went to college, fell in love with science and biology and kinesiology and ended up studying those, uh, disciplines. And I did it all so I could apply it to whitetail hunting, believe it or not. And, you know, I loved playing football and it taught me so much discipline and work ethic. But the truth is working logging with my dad before he died probably taught me more than anything how to work hard. Wow. But anyway, all that to say, all that to say, all of those things in my life that happened to me young really gave me the mindset that I think looking back now that I needed to be able to be successful at doing this for all these decades, because there's a lot of days you get your ass whipped out here. And you got to be okay with getting your ass whipped and not let it mentally beat you. And, you know, the way I grew up helped big time. The way my dad raised me helped big time. So, yeah, that's kind of a synopsis. And then, obviously, I just love it. I, there's nothing I would rather do outside of my family stuff than hunt these big mountain whitetail bucks that are, you know, they're all out there on big public lands. And they still intrigue me to this day more than anything on the planet. Yeah, man, I, 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 you know, one thing that I think, and you maybe alluded to it a little bit there, but I want to draw it out because it, it's really going to inform kind of your strategy for hunting and the way you approach things. Most guys, when, when I know when I think about Western whitetails, I think about, you know, the videos that I used to watch as a kid, right, like, of the Milk River or something like that. And you just see these huge numbers of whitetails in river bottoms or, or that kind of stuff, you're hunting the total opposite a lot of times, but also hunting a very, very low deer density area. So you've got these vast expanses of woods, very low deer densities, and grew up doing it with a bow without bait, um, which is really interesting to me. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the old school, what I think of as northern, you know, climate places uh, obviously allowed for baiting and that kind of thing. So l- talk to me a little bit about, you know, kind of with the the size of the areas that you're hunting, where do you even begin? I mean, I, I just moved to an area where I've got a 30,000 acre chunk of public about 25 minutes down the road, which is nice. It, that's a nice big piece. I feel overwhelmed yeah. by it, right? Like I feel overwhelmed by 30,000 acres. So when I hear you say 10.5 million, you know, or like millions of acres around you, that to me, I I don't even know how to take that in. So how do you take a step back and start to hone in on the areas that you want to hunt? Well, obviously it was a lot of years of educating myself and failing and breaking, you know, it's just like anything else in life. You want to be really good at something, you better be able to break it down and pay attention to all the details or you're just going to waste your time. So Idaho obviously forced me to not throw out a corn pile and shoot deer over corn. Now I want to say this to all the listeners in states that where they allow baiting, Hey, you do whatever you want to do. And I honestly do not have an issue 
with states that allow it. Um, do, do I choose to hunt specific ways? Cause I think it might be more productive. Absolutely. Um, but back to your question of breaking down a big piece, where do you even start? Where, where I first started was, and when I was young and making a lot of mistakes was just an, an exorbitant amount of boots on the ground. Hmm. Uh, I grew up, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this. I grew up logging with my dad. My dad was a logger and I started logging with him when I was 13. You want to talk about learn how to work. And I'm not talking, he didn't give me no little sissy job. I had to work full time with him every day, sawing trees for his machine. And anyway, it taught me a work ethic that when I went for hikes in the woods or practice for football or practice for basketball or practice for baseball or track or whatever, I played all kinds of sports. All of those sports and all of those hikes in the woods felt like a break compared to working with my dad. Oh, man. So he throws me into this world at 13. You know, nowadays OSHA wouldn't even allow it. It just wouldn't happen. Sure. You know, you just wouldn't get to be raised like that. And people would say it was child abuse and it was unbelievably great for me. And, you know, I was making three, $4,000 back in the eighties every month, which was a lot of money for a kid. Yeah, at 13, absolutely. Years old. You know, I have a lot of money every month. And my dad said, you want to learn, you want to, you want to learn how to work, come to work with me. So anyway, all that to say, all of that applied to my mentality of uh, what it's nothing for me still like today all day long, nothing for me to go for a 12 hour walk. And I just, I love it. It's who I am. And the, you know, the 12 hour walks I've been doing for 40 years. So it's just always been ingrained in me who I was. And I give a ton of credit to my father teaching me how to work when I was young. Um, but when you do, when you put all of that time into the woods and walking and hiking and breaking stuff down over years and years, you really learn to pick up on things, not miss things, really get locked in when you're out scouting. And then I just, you know, as I got older, I started breaking everything down and started, you know, I killed a buck when I was 12 years old by myself, just out of pure will. But I didn't want to get, I was always one of those kids that didn't want to believe or be a lucky kid or a lucky ball player. I wanted to study my craft, learn as much as I could about it. I've always thought for myself. I've never let anybody tell me how to think about how, hunt, how to hunt a whitetail. I listen to people. I ask tons of questions. But I've always let the mountains and the deer teach me the most. So... I felt like I've always been locked in and very in tune with whitetails, even when I was young, because I loved it so much and wanted so badly to get proficient at it. So what happened was, is over time, the breaking down of country, learning how to study maps, picking up sheds, reading signs, figuring out where these pockets of whitetails were in the mountains started to get easier. You know, and I started breaking it down by elevations habitat, habitat species, favorable feed for the different months of the hunting seasons. We open in August. We close in December. You know, did this stuff happen overnight? Heck no. It took a lot of time, Josh, so that I finally, you know, I started really getting better at really pinpointing deer. And I started killing deer and nice, nice bucks. 
two-year-old, three-year-old. And then, you know, when I'm like 14, I run into this giant to me back then. He's probably 155 inch five by five. And I thought it, to me, it looked like a 200 inch deer nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And he, he eluded me so easily and outsmarted me. And I never could find him the rest of the season, but I'd see his tracks. This is way before trail cameras. When I was 14, that deer had a huge impact on me because he kicked my butt the entire season. And I'm trying to teach myself how to hunt this deer in the mountains that I'd found. And it jumped out of his bed. I think it was 10 or 15 yards. So then I was like, all right, killing these younger bucks is really cool. I'm only 14 or 15 years old. But I thought, man, do I want to be able to hunt a buck like that. And I had to ask myself, how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to do it? Well, I dove into everything biological I could. I started figuring out that the mountain bucks like to visit scrapes. And I was fortunate to live on a 50-acre ranch to where I got to watch those and younger bucks a lot in the daylight, hit my licking branches and scrapes on our property well before hunting season ever opened and well after hunting season closed. So this is way back in the eighties. And I'm thinking these deer like these scrapes and they like them a lot and they hit them all through the year. So I started honing in on my own on scrapes. And then I just dove into that because I knew that was a destination that I could catch older mature whitetails at two in the daylight. That was my destination. And people would say, well, what about your food sources in the mountains, Troy? Well, come out to the mountains. Food sources are endless and they are everywhere. My, my best bucks bed down in their food sources. And if they don't want to have to move all day in the daylight, they don't have to because it's all unbelievable browse out here. That's why these mountains actually grow some incredible bucks because we have the feed. So all that to say, Josh, it's been a huge endeavor, uh, a huge dedication that, and a commitment that I absolutely cherish and love. And every year it gets, I, I'm more passionate about it right now than when I was 12. Every year it just keeps building and I just keep learning. Wow. And, and you're at a stage in your career now. And I mean, I don't know exactly when this happened, but, you're not just chasing, you know, big bucks for your area or whatever. You are after a certain age class. You like to whittle it down to a handful of deer that you're really after, maybe just one that's kind of, you know, your main target. Um, to me, that just sounds like needle in a haystack kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it sounds really, really tough. So let's let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of these specific bucks that you're that you're targeting, what makes a buck one that you really want to go after? I mean, you've got so much ground that you're covering. I'm sure you run into a lot of other deer as well. Uh, what makes one hit your list? In 1998, I killed my first targeted buck. I found his sheds too. Since 1998, and I've averaged over one buck per year, I have killed a target buck every year but one. I've killed one trespasser since 1998. Wow. But I, but to be fair, I always make sure I have four to five legitimate target bucks 
between two states, sometimes three states. If I jump into Montana, Montana's a little different because you got to draw. But, the speci- but, but hunting specific bucks, Josh, and I'll say this till the day I die. You want to learn how to hunt whitetails? Like you really want to learn? Like you really want to challenge yourself? And it's not for everybody. I don't want to ruin somebody's hunting because they can't stand it. But if you truly want to learn how to hunt a whitetail, make yourself hunt specific bucks every year and let them teach you from your mistake. And that's what I did. I just had, I just had a mindset that this is what I'm going to do. And if they kick my ass, it's okay. Because every time they kick my butt and teach me a lesson, I'm getting better and I'm learning. If I just were, were to decide to just shoot deer in Idaho and Washington, I would be tagged out early every year. And if I did not care about age class, I would be hunting a less condition, less stress, uh, lower response to negative stimuli deer. And when you do that, you don't learn as much. Now, not everybody wants to put themselves through the rigors that I put myself through to do this when I was younger, but now it's just, now it's just amazing because anywhere I go, if I find a deer I like, and the thing that makes me tick now, like you were asking in your question is, Josh, I'm looking for, literally I I'm, I'm at the point now I'm trying to kill a buck of a lifetime, every buck I shoot buck of a lifetime. And for me out here in the mountains of this country, that's a five plus year old white tail. And it usually has a pretty darn good cage on the top of his head. It's usually pretty incredible. Are there a lot of them? No. I mean, that's why I cover so much ground. That's why I'm talking to you in a pickup right now, three hours away from my house. Because they're not behind my house. They're not living everywhere. I go, I go out and find gene pools of really good whitetails, and I target those big drainages with good gene pools in them. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, that piece, you know, number one, uh, targeting a specific, you know, specific genetic. I mean, I, I think of a place we were on uh, when I, growing up in Alabama, and, you know, there were specific deer that you could look at and you could tell, like, they just came from the property. You know, the, the, yeah. the hunting club that we were on, it just, there was, a, there were kind of two different strands, I guess you could say, of bucks. There was this very familiar, uh, you know, high and tight kind of rack that would come up and they all looked kind of the same, like they were, you know, could all be sons of one another. And then there was this yeah. nicer, a little bit wider, maybe not quite as much mass, but, but nicer buck. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you hone in on that, but then I'm also curious to know as you hone in on the area, maybe the drainages that have the, the genetic makeup that you're looking for, how do you find these pockets of deer? Because that's one thing, you know, I'm hunting big woods here in this 30,000 acre piece and I'm learning more and more. It's not about, uh, necessarily just finding the edges and, you know, finding good cover because edges and good cover and good brows are everywhere. I've got to find the pockets of deer where they're at, you know, during this month's time frame. How are you doing that? All right. What do you want first, the genetics or the actual finding the pocket? Yeah, let's do, let's do the genetics. All right. Genetically, this is the biology guy in me from way back when I was, I mean, in high school, I've said this on podcasts before. 
I put together a complete white-tailed deer every bone. I drilled a hole in every bone, put a skeleton of him completely together. I'm just fascinated by it. So studying the science, studying how deer communicate, um, seeing all that stuff play out at my ranch that I grew up on, my little ranch in northern Idaho, um, paying close attention to whether we had five by fives around or four by fours around predominantly, or if we had like a, a non-typical genetic in the area, I paid close attention to that. Even when I was a teenager picking up sheds. So that's expanded out for me. And now what I do is I go into these different giant areas, drainages, and I'll scout them, shed hunt them, try to find every piece of evidence that intrigues me based on DNA that's in the area to want to hunt there. Uh, you know, I'm looking for uh, sheds are huge because sheds are the real honest intel of what's running around in the woods in those areas. Trail camera pictures nowadays are huge because there's your real life intel also. But once I find a drainage that holds the kind of genetics I'm looking for, then I'll break the heck down. I'll break that drainage down big time, walking it, shed hunting it, uh, I e-scout and map the heck out of everything. But what I really base it all on is how and why are these really good deer, older bucks, I'm always asking myself, why? Why do they want to be here? And the common denominator in my country, and maybe in this big country you're diving into where you find the pocket where they want to live, is my pockets usually equate to excellent security cover, a decent amount of doe family groups within traveling range of them, excellent food and water. But number one, number one is they always, these big deer that survive and get to five, six years old in my country, because they have to take on mountain lions and grizzlies and wolves and everything else, the number one common denominator is always a wind advantage. Hmm. Always a wind advantage for them. Now, a wind advantage is more than just a wind that's blowing in their face or a thermal that's protecting them all day while they bed down during the day. A wind advantage might mean prevailing thermal or prevailing wind combined with the thermal that works in their favor where they in a bedding zone that they want to live in. But it also usually means it's really hard to get in close to them without making noise. So a lot of blowdowns, a lot of heavy cover, just hard to get to hideouts. And it makes sense. You can't walk in on them without them hearing you. They're set up in position with the daily prevailing winds up on ridges tons of security cover where nobody can glass them or see them or shoot them with a rifle from 800 yards away. And they hide out in these spots that protect them from all the apex predators as well. And I target those zones now. And I use all of the aforementioned part variables of the equation when I'm thinking about where I'm going to go scout. Was I doing that 20 years ago? No, I was just learning it. But now it just makes sense. So when I go into these kinds of places now, using all those variables I chatted about earlier and get on a map, usually when I go into these new areas, Josh, guess what I end up finding there? 
what's that? Uh, hold on, hold a big on. White, a big, a big, a big white tail. Oh, a big white tail. Uh, big, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll end up, I'll end up finding one or two or three of them because it just makes it's common sense for. I mean, you know, it, there's no magic to it. It, it is. It makes sense why they would want to live where they have all those advantages. You know, getting yeah. hunted three hundred hunted three hundred sixty five days a year by apex predators is. I'll tell you what, you better be on your A game because, as a human, I'm not the, I'm not the scariest predator to the bucks that I kill. Mm. Yeah, you've got a season. <laughs> I, I've got yeah, I get a short season, and I can't move like a mountain lion, and I can't hunt like a lion can twenty four seven all night long. You know, and all of this has, all of this, these variables out here has taught me to really hone in on what an old mature buck gravitates to as he has close calls, as he has near death experiences, as he makes it. There's kind of a recipe that adds up to where he's going to be, and it usually works when I go look in these areas. Yeah, so I'm curious, one of the things you mentioned is that there will be, you know, a decent number of doe family groups, sort of, and, and all this stuff within a within a decent traveling distance. This yep. may differ for, for different regions of the country, and I'm going to come back to some stuff here in just a second that doesn't differ, but how far is that for you? When you say within a decent distance for him to travel, uh, how far are you talking? Because that's big country you out know, there. Yeah, big country, you know, Josh. My, the best deer I've ever killed in my life, and I've killed lots of five-year-olds and older, have always had doe family groups within a minimum of a mile, and a lot of times they're within half a mile of them. Yeah, okay. Okay. And when, when I hunt Midwest, the South, when I've hunted Canada, it seems closer because deer seem more congregated. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So I'm I'm just trying to piece this together here. So it it seems like there's this sweet spot, right? Because I hear a lot of guys talk about, um, you know, obviously in November you find the does, you find the bucks, but for a huge portion of the rest of the year, you know, bucks, especially mature bucks, are a little more solitary, want to be away from that social pressure a little bit. So it's almost like there's this sweet spot of they're away from the social pressure, but they're not disconnected totally from these other pockets of deer. Does that make sense? Yeah, you said it perfect with the word disconnected. They're not. They, in my country, they can keep tabs just through their nose alone with the thermals, and they can be half a mile away pretty easy. Wow. Yeah, because the daily thermals out here are like a wind. They're so powerful in the mountains. Like it, when you're sitting in a tree stand all day out here, the thermal isn't some little slight little fluffy breeze. <laughs> I mean, it's no, seriously, it heats up and cools down so much out here. And if you study the physics of thermals, our temperature drops can go from 80 in the daytime in early September hunt whitetails or, excuse me, 100 all the way down to 40. Oh, my word. Because I'm up on high elevation mountains. You know, it might drop down to 35. I've had freezing nights in September, and during the day it was 100 degrees. Oh, my gosh. So we get definite definite thermals that really help out animals to survive. 
And that's why the majority of our veteran whitetail bucks stage and live above elevation wise of the majority of the doe family groups. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. They yeah. can scent check without ever having to see them. Yeah. So what is that elevation line? You know, I mean, we're talking, we're, we're talking whitetails here, right? We're not talking some other kind of big game. So what, what right. is that elevation line that they kind of max out at? I've hunted whiteys all the way up to 6,000 feet. And I know in the real hot, hot summer, they're above that sometimes. But my sweet spot for the big whitetails, and I've killed the majority of my bucks outside of the rut. Now, I've killed really good ones in the rut too, but I pride myself in killing them from August 30th to December 24th. And that's because I know where they're bedding, no matter what time of the year it is, based on a lot of research. All that to say, Josh, back to your question, I like that. I really like 3,000 to 5,000 feet. Okay. And, and a lot of that depends on, Josh, the area that I'm in and the max elevation of the mountains around me. Interesting. So it's it's kind of in, in proportion to what's there yeah. as opposed to yeah. a certain, you know, elevation footage. Exactly. So let's say, like right now I'm sitting – uh, looking out my window at a mountain that's probably tops out at about 6,800 feet. Up in that country, three to 5,000 is excellent. Okay. The buck, the buck I killed this year, the mountain tops out at about 4K, 4,500. I killed him at three, 3,200. So your proportion ratio is exactly dead on. They find the sweet spot within their elevation boundaries that works best for them to survive. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Okay. So they're they're almost doing a lot like what maybe an Eastern guy would think about in Hill Country, where yeah. they're they're maximizing, you know, that that we, we we talk about it a lot as an upper third. I have not witnessed that it's truly a a third. I've found that it varies depending on the shape of the the shape of the hill and a lot of other things as well. But but, you know, we throw around that upper third. So it's almost it's almost the same thing there. It's a spot that allows them to take advantage of the thermals. It also allows them to still have good food and enough water and all that in one place. Yeah, and I've talked about an upper third for 20, 30 years, and it's true until you run across country like I hunted in southern Ohio. I forgot to bring up Ohio. I hunted there, too. When anytime there's roads on top, and every, all the humans are on top, then the upper third isn't such a hot spot. It's yeah. more like the center. The center. 
Yep. And I, I run into that out here. When I have logging slash National Forest Service roads that run across the top of my big ridges, it's almost like clockwork that all the bucks move down and live in that middle half for It just makes sense for them for safety. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, the upper third has some merit to it. Yep. If nobody's getting to the top much. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. So uh, yep. let, let's talk. This just brought me back to something that, you know, I wanted us to get to anyway. And it's that whole uh, concept. We talked about it a little bit off air of deer do deer things, right? Like you've hunted a lot of different places. You've hunted Canada. You've hunted a lot of states here in the U.S. Um, yep. You hunt really rugged, difficult terrain here in the U.S. There may be guys at home that are like, eh, is that really relevant for me? And I think the answer is yes, because as I've said on this show, a lot of times deer do deer things. So what are those things that you see where you are that are just repeated across the country, but maybe in a contextualized way? Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Every place I've ever went to and hunted deer, keep doing the deer things for me. I I see it everywhere and I've been able to capitalize on it. Um, a huge thing that deer do with deer things is security cover. Deer adhere and check scrapes year round. Deer absolutely bed where they feel the safest they can feel in their individual environments. Individual deer have personalities. One thing about hunting specific bucks, they really teach you to hunt more than just a deer. You hunt his demeanor. Mm. You capitalize on his demeanor. You really dive into his, you know, I probably shouldn't say the word personality, but his demeanor is going to be, might be aggressive, might be middle of the road, might be a real loner and might be a low testosterone type guy that chills a little more. You just, you run into all different kinds or he might be a bully buck that wants to fight everything on the mountain. So deer do a lot of deer things everywhere I go and deer definitely, definitely keep track of, especially older bucks of exact dates of when those that they already know and have tried to breed or bred in the past, they know when to be there. They know when to show up on those same does. Yeah. That's which is that's photo period. Yeah. And that's something I've heard you say, gosh, it, it must've been a couple of years ago. I don't know when you first started doing podcasts, but, um, I heard you say it a long time ago, and I've got a, a doe group in southern Wisconsin that I have now hunted for uh, three years, and very qui- very quickly I was able to realize they're, they're coming in to the, around the same time every year, and this doe yeah, family you know- group is in the same pocket, so I can count on between, you know, this November, like, 8th, 9th, 10th is just going to be on fire in this certain doe bedding area. Um, whereas, you know, right across town, it's going to be October 31st through November 2nd. It's going to be on fire. Absolutely. I've said it forever. Date your does, write it down. Yeah. Every time you, every time you get a mature buck intel of him, checking your does, breeding your does, whatever he's doing, you get him in there in daylight, you write that down because he's there for a reason, especially if he's a trespasser. And when you're hunting properties that are a lot smaller than I hunt, you know, that's an obstacle for people that don't have huge country. I have no fences. You know, you guys really want to date those those because then you're there in that pocket 
on those does when you know the best couple bucks in the area are going to be there tending to them. Yeah, that's good. That's really, really good. Um, one of the things you mentioned as, you know, deer things just a second ago is deer using scrapes pretty much throughout the year. And if there's anything that you've probably made a name for yourself on, it is, I mean, obviously killing huge bucks, but your use of not only natural scrapes, but mock scrapes as well. You kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, your hunting style forced you to move in that direction because that's really what, what's going to concentrate your bucks, right? Like that's going to be your, your spot that you know they're going to be coming to where you can either get a shot or, um, you know, hang a camera to get some really good intel. Talk to me a little bit more about how you think about scrapes and then how you think about hunting them. Just because, you know, I feel like for as much as we understand in the whitetail world about scrapes, there's a lot that we still don't understand as well. And there's a lot of different strategies that people use to hunt them. And, you know, a lot of things work for different people that, you know, don't work for others or people have different preferences of how they hunt them. Yeah, to start with, I, I condition deer year-round to want to hunt me. I don't know many people that do that. So I'll either overmark unbelievable scrape finds that I find, community scrapes, big calm hub scrapes, community scrapes, social big hub scrapes that it that have been there for decades and in order to understand what that is, you got to know what you're looking for. You got to be able to break down the evidence at the scrape at the licking branch. And it usually coincides with excellent daylight travel security cover, excellent wind advantages for deer that want to get to it in the daylight that are comfortable. And it's usually fairly close to a bedding area. And a lot of times what happens is, is you get doe family groups, if you drew circles on a map where you normally see them living, and then if you have bucks close and you drew circles on the map where those bucks were, usually where those circles barely overlap or almost touch is where you'll find those big community scrapes. Yeah. So these community scrapes are what social media is to us. That's where we all connect and get in touch with each other spy on each other, keep tabs on us, you know, whatever, you know how people are. Well, deer want to keep track of each other too. They want it. Bucks want to know what's available to them for the rut. I mean, they live their whole year or life around to get built up for the rut. Those want to know what the best, the best dudes in the, in the woods are and who's around. And when a doe takes in the scent of a white tail buck, she has particulars. She's got, organs in her or she's got senses in her brain that can differentiate well how well he metabolizes protein so she can tell without consciously thinking about it because they don't think this way but it triggers her to know that this is a very healthy deer Hmm. so so does are checking these all the time oh okay big joe showed up okay you know the the the, the king of the mountains here now. This is the dude I'd rather have breed me than this other deer that I sent checked that isn't as, doesn't pass on as favorable genes. Now, they are, are they thinking that consciously? No. But that's how their brain is built based on how well a buck metabolizes protein and gives off this basically a signal of strength and survivability. And then those will 
try to hold out for those really good bucks if you have a good buck-to-doe structure. They can't hold out if you don't have good buck-to-doe structure. But all that to say, these scrapes are the key. They're the linchpin. They're the linchpin to communication and giving all the deer a reason to know who's still alive, who's still around, who can I socialize with, and who do I want to stay away from. So this goes on year-round at a licking branch, especially for deer that get pushed out with snow and then have to move back into an area. They really want to reconnect. And I noticed that in my high mountain country, deer, bucks and goes both, that as soon as April hits and the snow comes off, they come back right to my scrapes and start loading the scrapes up with scent right away. Hmm. Are they are they pawing in the ground and pissing in the ground? No. They're just working those licking branches like crazy. Um, I really don't see the dirt getting beat up too much until about the last week of August, early week of September when they go to Hardhorn. When the testosterone rises, I start seeing a big pickup in the actual dirt and urine being worked. But I hunt deer off of licking branches more so than I do off of just the dirt, if that makes sense. And I only hunt community scrapes that are daylight favorable. Yeah, you you mentioned, you know, you need to have the the ingredients there. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about this when it comes to what if you don't find you know, this unbelievable scrape that you're looking for. You're in an area, you know, a buck's there. I know you're going to make it right. Like you're going to, yeah. you're going to yeah. put in a mock scrape of your own. Yeah. What, what are those essential ingredients? Like when it's in the right place, you kind of talked about what, what makes it the right place right there. Um, what is it that needs to be duplicated? Because mock scrapes I have found uh, are really very divisive. <clears throat> um, when it comes to people's opinions about how effective they are. And I, myself, I've had mock scrapes that I throw up that are just get taken over immediately. And, you know, you come back in and it's shredded in there, but then I've had others that I put up and nothing ever pays any attention to it whatsoever. So I'm curious what, what sets them apart that, that actually makes them work. Well, the two things that set them apart hundred percent is how detailed and scent-free is your mock scrape when you build it. So it's got to be detailed. It needs to have a visual to the deer in the area and have scent that works for them. So a visual, and from an odor point of view, the odor has to be right. The visual has to be right. It has to dupe them right off the bat. They have to believe it's legit. Because a lot of the animals that you're trying to get on a scrape have lived there for several years. Mm. So if you contaminate, I trap whitetails. The shittiest trappers on the planet contaminate their set. And then they think their trapping's a joke. So attention to detail, attention to visual, the right odors, and the actual build is so important. When a whitetail buck that's lived in an area for five years walks through the mountains and sees one of my scrapes, it's going to stick out to him like a sore thumb from 50 yards away. And I make him look like what the mountains have taught me and what the deer have taught me over the years, what a true community scrape is going to look like. Multiple, tattered, torn, beat up, 
vertical hanging licking branches, like a witch's hand hanging down. And it's going to almost, ha- I always place it where the backdrop really makes it stand out. And it's going to be at about a five foot height. So if he's 50 yards away and looks over, he's just going to lock onto it because his brain is programmed from being alive for five years to immediately see that and go to it. Now, is a six-month-old little white-tailed buck going to be programmed that way? No. His, his mama will teach him what a scrape is, and she'll walk him through them, and he'll lick on it. So that's way different for younger deer. Older does will see the same visual, and they will just – and the reason I know this is I've been running video, long, long videos, 30 seconds to a minute long videos, for almost yeah, – probably over – yeah, over a decade now. Since, you know, since we could start running really good video and I'm capturing this on film and these, the oldest, most dominant bucks that I end up killing and just oldest bucks period. It's incredible to watch their demeanor when they see that from a long ways out. I mean, they really lock in a lot, a lot like a, a veteran police officer locking in on a criminal versus a seven year old kid walking down the street right by a criminal. You know mm. what I mean? Yep. Yep. Like it's, they know what they're looking for. So they know that that means, holy shit, what's that doing here in my turf? And I've never been to it before. So when I build these mocks, the licking branch is very detailed. And I always choose the species of licking branch that that drainage teaches me through scouting what they prefer the most. And that's what I use even if I have to transfer it and strap it to another tree. And then the dirt work on a big community scrape, and it doesn't matter what time of year you build it. Deer don't know what time of year it was built. They just need to know that when they visualize it, well, there it is. They're programmed, even in the spring, even in the summer, they're still programmed to see that dirt. And it's conditioned into their brain to go check it out. Just fresh dirt alone, will they'll check it out. I always put multiple profiles of deer in all my scrapes because I want a communal-based trap, not a single deer. I want a deer to roll up there and think there's eight deer in that scrape. And I learned this way back in the old days when I was taking a little garden shovel and a Ziploc bag in the 80s and the early 90s and digging up the fresh urinated in heavy scrape dirts during November and transferring them five, 10 miles away. I was doing that before I've ever heard anybody doing that. Wow. And I used to cut the licking branches off back in the eighties and nineties before I ever had scent. And I would cut these licking branches off and I would transfer them with the scrape dirt in the Ziploc bags and basically put a whole new group of deer onto a buck, if, if you will. Mm. So it just made it easier having the synthetics now that doesn't rot, doesn't get old. It's a lot, you know, it's just much easier. But the build itself has to emulate what the deer are used to and they use in whatever neck of woods you're hunting in. So you got to go do your homework. Yeah. And so- then once you... Yeah, once just, you mimic that, then they just then they just jump on it. I mean, they literally, especially the older bucks, they hunt. They start hunting you. Yeah. Okay. So once you've and, and this is all assuming. I, th- I think 
you know, it's worth saying one more time, even though we've covered it. This is all assuming you've got it in the right place. Like in location. A, in, that, in a, that's my sex. Yeah, I didn't even get to number two. That's its location. Yeah. So why don't location. you why don't you cover that part just a little bit? We'll talk. We'll talk location, and then I want to come back to sense not only being scent free, but uh, you know what you're using to get these started because there's also a lot of chatter online about uh, you know should you use this that or nothing at all. Well, online chatter is online chatter. I know this. I use multiple deer profiles, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I study every. I have a very good understanding of every gland on a white-tailed deer, and and how it works. So, you know, do guys want my actual recipe? Yes, all the time. Do I ever tell them exactly? No way. That's the one thing I put my <laughs> life into. But, but multiple, just, just think of all the glands, the saliva, the urine, everything. Jump into your biological research books and online and, and just, you know, it's really not that hard to dive into it. Now, location. I can go build the most amazing sculpted, incredible looking scrape on the planet. And it will not be worth a shit if it's not located where old bucks live, where doe family groups want to be and where they feel comfortable in the daylight. If you don't have the right location, your scrape is going to do nothing for you. Yeah. So let's, what are a, I guess let, let's let's see here. How do I how do I want to phrase this? What are some of those I guess key components when it comes to location? I heard you say in another podcast you've had guys send you you know pictures of their mock scrape or whatever that they've done, or you see where they set it up. What are some of those location mistakes that like guys thought they had it right? They thought they had it in the right spot, but something about it w- was just a little bit off, and it made the thing fail. I think the biggest failure is not being close enough to good bedding. Mm, okay. And, and you got to be, you got to be, go back to that map picture in your mind of the circles of the doe family groups versus where the buck circles would be. And are you putting them where it's most convenient for daylight for both of those groups? Hmm. Okay. And then will the wind the prevailing winds, and if you do have thermals, will they do all the work you need that scent to do as a trap all those days that you're not there? Will the wind work for you, or is the wind in your spot working against you based on where you where you figure out the bedding is? Now, if you can't figure out the bedding, then you're probably going to just hope and pray you put it in a good spot. And I think that happens more than... I think that happens 70, 80% of the time with mock scrapes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when it, when it comes to the, you know, setting this up and being scent free, how, how careful are you being and what are the steps that you're taking to make sure that you're not contaminating your trap? Right. Right. You know, what's a, you know, what's a good trapper do to keep their hands bent down um, I like to, when it's real hot out, I always wear, I, when it's hot, I wear latex gloves. Um, for 30 years I've used vanishing hunter. I spray down with it on my hands. I I've used that stuff forever and it's amazing. Uh, it just, 
it's the only thing you can spray on cat litter and it takes the scent away. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So that proved it to me that 25, 30 years ago, I started using that stuff. The vanishing hunter from buck fever synthetics is every guy that's ever got it for me begs me for more. So what's that tell you? Um, so I see my elk hunting buddies. They love it, but that's still not magic. It's not perfect. Um, one thing I do too, and I've done this a lot in the last decade is even with latex gloves on or vanishing hunter sprayed on my hands, I always grab a big handful of dark dirt soil. Cause we have so much of it in these mountains and I'll literally just wash my hands in dirt and all the way up to my, you know, the middle of my wrist or excuse me, the ri- middle of my forearm. And I really like that dirt scent on top of everything else. Okay. Then I'll build. I think dirt, you know, mountain lions teach us why they bury stuff under the dirt. Cats love to bury stuff in the dirt. Why? You can't smell it. Stuff can't, other predators can't find their kills. That's why they bury it in dirt. That's why cats bury their shit in dirt because you can't smell it. So I, I like dirt, which sounds simple, but I like it on top of vanishing hunter plus usually latex gloves when it's hot when it's real cold out usually just vanishing hunter and dirt a good dirt rub down on my hands and i'll build um my video cameras and my regular trail camera picture cameras always prove to me that i'm not contaminating them um i'm very careful when i dig the dirt out i always use about a five foot long stick from the woods that i pack away from the site when i'm done to dig all the dirt out when I sculpt out the licking branches, I, I'm pretty careful. I usually always have latex gloves on because it just makes sense to. Why put my human scent on something? If I'm going to go to all that work and drive all those miles and find that good buck, why in the heck would I ruin it being lazy? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's, latex gloves don't weigh anything. <laughs> They're easy to put in a pack, go down to the local pharmacy, get a box. Yeah. So when it comes to, all right, so we're, we're being really careful, right? At least a lot more careful yeah. than, than a lot of guys are when it comes I, to I the scent. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I would just say I'm probably more detailed than anybody when it comes to building a straight. I know David, David, David Riley Jr. Is really good at it. He and I've been scrape hunting and talking scrapes for 12 years. He's really good at it. Uh, also when you're setting your scrape up the entire time you're building it, you've already thought out how the wind is going to work at that scrape in your favor. And what that means is it's going to push scent to the deer, especially buck bedding that you want. And you've already calculated out and determined a way to come in from usually a parallel side and stay off that, that wind and be on a wind edge on certain winds and still be able to hunt it. I mean, you obviously can't go set it if your wind's blowing right through you to the to the bedding. That's a joke. That won't work. Um, so there's just so much that goes into a build keep that makes it work that people do not consider. And then they get frustrated with scrapes and think they're a joke. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's really good. So, all right. So we've got, let's say we've got our location down. We're going in, we're ready to be, you know, as scent free as we can be uh, to not contaminate the set. 
we build it. We're going to be super detailed. We're going to get the we're going to get the build just right in just the right location. We're ready to apply uh, now some scent so that this is going to catch a buck's attention. What is it that you're using? I've heard you say buck fever synthetics uh, a couple times tonight, and then obviously in some other podcasts before. So I'm curious to hear you know why that one stands out to you and kind of how you use it. Yeah, I've been using all the different products from Buck Fever Synthetics for a long time. But being the biology guy that I am, I've also added some of my own recipe to my entire process, which if I told you what was in it, it would make a ton of sense. I keep everything synthetic, though. I do not put anything in that's natural because anything natural is protein-based and it will break down and it will rot. Mm. So. So I'm a hundred percent synthetic. Um, man, I can still say this to this day. I have never witnessed a white tailed buck or doe spook on a trail camera in my presence, uh, on a video ever to my scrape build ever. No kidding. I am not lying. I have never had one come in on video or pictures and freak out. Wow. Since I started running cameras, which has, you know, been a long time now. But I was doing this way before cameras, before I could actually see that evidence. And I was doing it based on a trapper's mentality of being extremely careful about my scent. And my neighbor, when I was a young kid, 10, 11, 12 years old, was a trapper. And he told me, you know, I'd ask Tom, I'd say, Tom, how do you catch all these animals? He goes, I don't get my human scent in it. Hmm. Boom. And it made sense to me. Yeah, no shit. If it smells like a human, then what do all white-tailed deer do when they smell human? Yeah, bale. I mean, it's that simple. Is it hard to replicate? It's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder than it it sounds. It's a lot tougher. You got to, you know, if you hike into a spot, you're sweating like a pig, you're dripping all over in the scrape and you don't realize it and you're sloppy and you're tired and you're getting stung by or hit by mosquitoes or the bees are bugging you and you're building and you let that shit get to you in your head and you make a bunch of mistakes. You may as well not even win in there. Yeah. If you're building, if you're building to kill, I, everything I do is to kill. Uh, and I put a lot of thought into where I put that scrape before I ever lay it down. Sometimes Sometimes I'll stand at a spot and walk around an area that I know is dynamite because it's a hub, a hub set of trip where all of a bunch of terrain features and trails and ridges all run everybody to all the deer together. But I'll still spend 45 minutes to an hour and a half of just walking the outskirts of that, walking up on the hill a bit, checking all the thermals and the winds at multiple different locations. And I keep looking back at where I want to build that scrape and I'm, checking the security cover and how the thermal and the prevailing's working at every direction because it's a hub and I'm breaking all that down. Okay. Yeah, this is going to work. This is going to blow the scent from this scrape trap to the buck that I'm trying to kill where they're bedded to their bedding zone. It's also going to work on the downhill thermals to the does. It's going to pull everything to this local spot that the terrain already funnels here. And yes, right over there on that East side, I can get it. I can come in on a parallel lateral line, jump into a tree stand, and I can be just off the edge of it. And I got a wind vacuum and a tunnel behind me because there's a big crick or a draw behind me. You know, just stuff like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. All of that goes into play. It's, it's so many different variables that in the mountains have to go into play to make it work. Or it's just a waste of time. Yeah. So when you're, when you're hunting these, these scrapes, right, how often mm-hmm. are you hunting, you know, a, 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 what I would consider a pretty aggressive just off wind? Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot, a lot. You know, I, I will talk about it, and if I get a 75% odds win, 75% of the time I'm winning, I'm hunting. Hmm, okay. Because when you hunt the mountains, you will, no matter what, unless you're, unless you're sitting on the top of a ridge at a saddle, with a perfect 7 to 12 mile an hour wind, you will almost always everywhere else at least get a wind switch for 30 seconds to a minute during the day, four or five times through a whole day set. And you just, you just live with it. One reason why I hunt high, one reason why I hunt so clean, as long as that big deer isn't there right on that wind switch, I usually win. I really like to shoot for that 75% of the time. My wind is going to be nailed to kill this buck. And again, I'm hunting specific deer that I don't even go set at a spot or hang or hunt a spot unless I know that deer is killable based on intel. Yeah. Daylight. Daylight moving. Daylight. He'll frequent me in the daylight. It doesn't matter if it's August 30th or December 24th, anywhere in between. I have to have him daylighting before I'm going to go kill him. Yeah, and is it are are you pretty strict with your setups as far as like is is pretty much everything you hunt uh, within shooting distance of a scrape, or are you are you playing off of those a little bit further? Like, how does that how does that work? Because I mean, I, I know scrapes are a big part of your strategy, but how often are you sitting, you know, to to shoot the scrape or shoot just off of it? I can always kill them at my scrape. Okay. Always. Okay. So you're not a you're not a uh, let's set up fifty yards downwind because I think he's just going to try to come downwind of it. No, I don't base it on what I think. I'm going to base it on where he's at in the daylight. I'm going to base it on the hundred percent intel that I have of him moving into it on video. Um, I run every scrape and video with a windicator or two in the scrape video screen. So anytime my target box roll in, I've got old man's beard blowing in the background telling me exactly what wind he likes. Oh, that's a that's a pro tip right there. That's good. And I've hung old man's beard on my videos since in pictures since I started using trail cameras. It just made sense to me to have a windicator on video. Why not why wouldn't you? You know, it's simple. I just pull old man's beard off the trees and tie it up just up high or behind him, behind the licking branches in the scrape in the video picture framework so that even if it takes him 30 seconds to come in, I'm sitting there watching the wind blow. If you, if you go on my YouTube and watch any of my bu- my videos of bucks on my scrape, you look close, there's always old man's beard blowing in the wind in my scrape. <laughs> Man, that's a that's a good tip right there. I like that. You learn, you learn so much about deer if you run video and windicators. Yeah, I so last, maybe it was two years ago, I moved away from doing anything on, on regular picture mode. 
and it it made me it made me wonder like why in the world was I ever just putting out trail cameras to just take pictures like that was uh, a picture just feels almost useless at this point. Pictures can pictures can misinform you big time. Video doesn't. Right. That's exact. Like there are so many times that you know the the picture because what I've got now is kind of a hybrid mode. It takes a picture and sends you a video, and the the pictures oftentimes you know, you'll think the buck's coming from a different direction. Yeah. But the video will show you. Yeah, the videos, you know, I grew up being a football player and studying film and having my coaches chew my ass on videos. So I thought, man, I'm going to apply this to these deer. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't hide anything when you're on video. Yeah. That's (laughs) right. And I was just always like, my old old college football coach, boys, film never lies, ever. Film doesn't lie. You know, and it's just, just always rung in, rung in my brain. Yeah, you need to video these deer. And I suggest thirty seconds of video at the least. Yeah, do yeah, do the you max know? of what your what your camera will allow you. Yeah, my cameras that I'm running right now are two minutes. If I want to run two minutes on them, no kidding. What are you running? Yeah, I I'm running a really tiny camera. Uh, I like really tiny because I'm public and I don't want people seeing my stuff there you know i probably run too good of a setup because i've had a guy in the past climbing a tree and set up on my scrapes and i walk in to get my stand and he's like hey what are you doing here i'm hunting here and i said you see those three cameras you see that tree stand over there he goes holy shit i'm so sorry i didn't see any of it (laughs) he said all i saw were these three giant scrapes blown up with tracks all over in them Oh, but man. I, all I have to say is because I, I try to hide everything so that when the normal dude's walking through the woods, he doesn't even see it. Yeah. Yeah. I caught a forest, I caught a Timberland Forester still in my one camera one time because he didn't see my video camera. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And you know, that's why I've always said trail cameras need to be allowed in the woods because the guys that end up stealing your stuff, it'll blow your mind who actually steals it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I just sent the video to the uh, to the uh, timber company office. Said this is what your foresters are doing in the woods during the day. Mm. I wonder if that guy lost his job. I don't know, but they knew who it was. I My guarantee goodness. you. I just, yeah, just stuff like that, you know. And we're hundred percent legal to hang a camera on the public land. There's nothing wrong with it, but. Just etiquette, you know, people yeah. being. But anyway, back to what kind of camera. I'd like a real small. Um, I really, I was running a lot of my buddy Jeb Bailey's out of Oklahoma. I was running his suspect cameras. Um, they're really good. I like how small they are. The video is incredible. I like the Browning really tiny micros. I run the little micros. They fit in the palm of your hand. They run good video. Then I really like my Lone Wolf Custom Gear uh, video cameras too, like when I get a really big buck on camera, I'll usually put a custom gear camera on it just because the video is so nice. Like, it's really widescreen. Um, and it, any camera that, you know, isn't spooking them at night, not glowing huge, and just, you know, I, just for the, I look for those commonalities in cameras, but I do like the smaller compact cameras that are hard for deer to notice, hard for a bear to notice, hard for a human to notice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, man, I, I don't want to keep you too long. I, I already know I need to have you on again because there's so much more about uh, 
scrapes and hunting scrapes that I want to talk to you about. But I knew I had to get to the mock scrape stuff tonight because here's my question. When's the right time to put them up? Well, let's review location. Detail is key. Those two things. The right time to put a mock scrape up, if you build it on my philosophy of a community of deer, not a single deer, is any time during the year you want to. There you go. I, I built I built one, or no, I built two yesterday. And you do not have to worry. I, I dig the dirt out. I do it all. I add the multiple profiles because when a deer comes across it, even right now, it's just fine to have that scent there because they are programmed to think basically what happens to them is they get to it even right now and they go, if they've been around a lot of years, they'll be like, how in the heck did I miss it? That's how they behave on video right now. How did I miss it? They'll usually spend more time inspecting it initially than any other time because it surprises the older deer. Hmm. Yeah. And I see that on video. Little or the younger deer just love them. They just jump all over. They just love it and they just get triggered. Their biological responses just kick off. Um, you won't see them urinating in it till a little later, but I've had velvet bucks in the summer urinate in them before, which is pretty, pretty cool to see even in the summer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, not, not a lot though, but no, you can build them anytime you want. I'm in the mindset of conditioning deer year round and conditioning deer for five years, decades to just want to be there. And I have scrapes that I hunt that are multiple decades old and a lot of them at least a decade old. Uh, I have some mocks that I just started recently too, but the end goal is to have the scrape working for me 365 days a year, year round 24 seven so that I don't have to be out in the woods tromping through their bedding areas, screwing up good hunting. I let the scrapes work for me. And then I only touch them up. I have a once a month rule outside of season. And then I only touch them up when I'm hunting a deer at the scrape during the season. Okay. That was going to be my next question is how long are you, how long are you going back to uh, freshen them up if you need to? Right. I like that once a month rule outside of season that definitely knocks down your infiltration, you know, too many frequencies in there and getting your human presence in there too much. And then, only when I hunt the spot or check a camera. Then I always, I always touch them up anytime I check a camera or hunt the spot. And then one last thing too is really important. I've killed two of the biggest bucks in my life on the day I put the scrape down on purpose to blow to their bedding area. No kidding. Two, two of them. Yeah, put it right in their face. I'm very aggressive with scent. Um, if I'm going to sit down and hunt a big deer and I know he's in a bedding area, why would I not want to have that scent out there for a enticer, uh, pull him right to me. He's, he's already showed that he's working this area anyway, based on, you know, historical data or right now data, whatever we have on him, maybe we glass beam or, you know, trail cameras up and whatever. The whole idea is throw that scent at him the day you're hunting him takes me about five minutes to build a good scrape, pan at the most, jump in the tree, and then I sit there and let that scent, you know, out there 20, 30 yards beyond me, working in my favor towards him, and I'm just off to the edge wind. Just just playing that edge by about 15 yards of where I think he's going to approach from. Wow. 
Man, that's that's like some next level aggressive kind of uh, hunting strategy right there. I will go in. I've done it. I did. I did it in Iowa on the biggest buck I've ever hunted in my life, and I did it. But I've did it a couple times in out west out here on a buck where I had to move on him to get right in his face, and then I did it on my other biggest buck ever out of state down in Oklahoma and killed killed him the first time I laid that trap in their face. Man. Holy cow. Yeah, we we definitely need to do another one uh, talking scrape strategy as far as, you know, the specifics of when you go in for the hunt because there are a lot of questions that I've got left to ask, but I've already kept you on here for over an hour. So, Troy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate that. If folks want to keep up with you, find out a little bit more about uh, you and what you've got going on, where can they find more? Um, I'm doing a seven or eight part series with the fall podcast. Yep. They can get a bunch of information there. I just started. It's called the Pottinger way. Um, Instagram is the easiest and best place just to talk to me. You know, I'm just a normal guy like everybody else that loves whitetails. I always try to treat people how I want them to treat me. So I try to, I always get back to you. If it takes me half a day or a day, it's usually cause I'm out in the woods, but Instagram is M T N mountain M T N underscore man. So mountain man 33 with the M T N underscore man. Maybe you could put that in your notes. Yep. I'll have, I'll link everything in, uh, in the yeah. notes there. Yeah. And then, uh, my YouTube is just older stuff that doesn't, put any of the bucks I'm trying to hunt in danger right now, but it's really cool stuff. Like if you just watch the scrape videos of bucks hitting the scrapes and it's just my name, Troy Pottinger. Awesome. Awesome. Good deal. Well, Troy, I got to say one more thing. Oh yeah, sure. Go for it. I get talked to about scrapes all the time, but just, just for the listeners, there's so much more to this game all the time you put in and the scouting and everything that, that's why the scrapes work, but there's just so much behind the scenes that more than just the scrapes do that we could touch on anything. Yeah. Yeah, man, I think that would be a good, uh, maybe a good follow-up, too, to, to come back and talk to and say, okay, Troy, talk to me about anything except for scrapes. Yeah, you know? and I love it all. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love it all, and I'll go, into, I'll go down a rabbit hole on scrapes because they have been so powerful for me. But... It's that year-round, 365 days a year of thinking like a whitetail and how to be be a step ahead of a big whitetail versus always behind him is so important. And it's mindset, it's effort, it's fitness, it's everything to be able to go do this kind of stuff. And the best part about it is we all love it. That's why we listen to these things. That's why we talk about them. So I think we can all always learn from each other. That's exactly right. Well, Troy, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn from you. I look forward to having you on again. And, hey, good luck. I, I, I know you've got a few more days of, uh, of scouting before you get back to work. So, Yeah, thanks, Josh. It was a good time. Uh, podcast is only as good as it's uh, podcaster, and you did a great job. Thank you. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Have a good evening. Yep, take care. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. 
Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.